Welcome to Arts Express. This is Prairie Miller, and on the show, we are in strange times indeed. Let me put it this way, that's where we are in America, a country that is stuck on stupid. Deep dive political analyst and Pacifica host Garland Nixon breaks it down. My name's Garland Nixon, plenty to talk about. You know, we are in strange times indeed. Strange, strange, strange times indeed. Let's talk about the legal issues that are going on, right? Number one, we got Trump. He's been charged with everything, but um, I don't think they charged him with snatching a... uh, snatching his uh, tag off his mattress yet, but I think that's go- that, that's coming up next. So we got, you know, I guess if you are a diehard Democrat or you're a person that hates Trump, um, you have to you have to cheer for that, not because you it's, you think it's just or unjust, but because you hate Trump, right? If you're me, if you're Garland Nixon, it has nothing to do, uh, let me put it to you like this. Let me put it to you like this. Let me put, and, and I think this is important because I asked somebody the other day, I'm talking to somebody, a friend. And I said, what do you think about the Trump stuff? Oh, yeah, he got charged, blah, blah, blah. And I asked this question. I said, really? I said, do you think he's guilty? Oh, yeah, Trump's guilty. You kidding me? Blah, 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 blah. And I listened for a while. Oh, yeah, he's guilty. Yeah, you think they'll find him? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I said, I got a question. He said, what? Tell me a little bit about the case, what he's charged with, the facts of the case, etc." They didn't know a thing about it. They knew nothing. They knew Trump was guilty, but they had no idea the facts of the case. My dear and fluffy friends, that goes against everything I believe in. You see, I believe in justice. There was a time. See, injustice, as Martin Luther King said, injustice for one is injustice for all. Whatever you think about the case, it, I find it discomforting that we are in a place in America where if you say to someone who likes Joe Biden or is a Democrat or whatever, hey, they're accusing Joe Biden of mopery on the high seas, that your position has to be, I don't think he did it. Wow, that's just the Republicans. They're just going after Joe Biden because they don't like him, blah, blah, blah. Really, tell me about the what they're alleging that Joe Biden did. I don't know. I just know he didn't do it. Really, what about Trump? Oh, my God, the man's guilty. Are they going to give him the chair or what? The chair, the chair, the chair for Trump, And which I say, do you know? Do you tell me about the charges? That's where we are in America. A crisis of ignorance and stupidity and cultism where people no longer have any concern about justice. They don't need to know about it. All they need to know is who's charged. Hey, who got charged? Uh, Mitch McConnell. Ah, find him guilty. Who got charged? Um, AOC. Oh, my God, it's an injustice. How could they do such a thing? That's where we are in America, a country that is stuck on stupid now. The intelligence, gone, out the door. It's become a fest of who we like and who we don't like. That's how we decide who's guilty, who's right, who's wrong, who, who means what they who say, who doesn't mean what they say. You know, I'm I'm just a regular guy that enjoys. I don't even think I have a radio show. I'm just a person that runs my mouth. You know, I have people ask me stuff. You know what's funny to me? I've had people call me and say, why did you say this? Is somebody paying you to do this? What about this? Into which most people don't realize this. Like today is a perfect example. Uh, uh, more often than not, when my show starts, I don't even know what I'm going to say. Oftentimes, I don't even know what I'm going to talk about. I just let the music start playing and something comes out and whatever it is, something happened. I don't know what it is. But, you know, the bottom line is, I think, and, and we all know, you know, the history of this country, that if you look at the great leaders, if you look at even the, the, the Kennedys, they killed two of them. They killed Fred Hampton, Malcolm X, Martin Luther King. You know, i tell you what surprises me. With the history of the atrocities that our government has committed to these, I mean, you could start with black folks and national and uh, uh, indigenous Americans here. You could go to South America and all around the world with all the terrible things that have been done by our, the, the lies, the murdering of presidents and all that. What always surprises me, when our government says, yes, we're standing up for sovereignty, democracy, and they say, we're going around the world to stand up for, for good. And when you look at... Their record, it shocks me that we still got people that believe that. Let me just say this, that always surprises me.
because I'll talk to people about whatever overseas, and they'll repeat, you know, the government, the, the U.S., the CIA lines, right, the, the official government lines. Well, we're doing that. We've got to stand up for democracy and blah, blah, blah. And I just think to myself, do you really understand the history of this country that I can't think of a time where the United States stood up for democracy. In fact, most of the time, we overthrow governments that are democratic and replace them with far-right-wing fascist dictators. But for some reason, we got people, when our government says we're standing up for democracy against the dictator, they believe it. I never believe it. It has never been true one time in history. Why would I believe it now? Coming up next on Arts Express. Hang on. Hi. Hi. Who are you? Uh, police. Did something happen? Oh, no, no, no. Luckily, nothing has happened as of yet. I understand that you're fond of shopping at Carlson's supermarket. Why, did something happen at Carlson's? No. Uh, however, we'd like to uh, prevent things from happening to uh, businesses in the vicinity like Carlson's supermarket. Yeah, may, may, may I uh, come in? I'd like to see a police badge. Well, so would I. Unfortunately, that today is going to be a bit of a problem. Now, <clears throat> I can tell by your expression that you think it's a bad thing that I don't have my police badge on me. Right. Well, I'm here to tell you that it's a, it's a good thing for the police department. And I'm not going to lie to you, okay? It also happens to be a good thing for me on a personal level. Yeah. You see, my, my badge, it's um, at the silversmith. Yeah, it's at the, the silversmith there. They're shining it up and um, adding a few additional citations to it. I've been promoted. Okay. Right. So now you're. Now, now what are you? Like, what's your, what's your rank now? We're not at liberty to discuss that. Uh, that's considered classified information. However, I think this is safe to say that it, it's a considerable leap up the ladder. Uh, now, may I? No, not without a badge. Bravo, bravo. And those were scenes from Danish director Lars Van Trier's 2018 The House That Jack Built in which Matt Dillon's stalker stranger with exceedingly deranged motives sets his sight on a random woman played by Siobhan Fallon Hogan, who's not having it, or maybe not. And Hogan is our guest today on Arts Express to talk about another tough woman she plays, some of her work, and her vast number of productions, including as well Lars Van Trier's Dancer in the Dark and Dogville, along with Saturday Night Live, The Golden Girls, and Forrest Gump, in which Hogan is the local school bus driver, a role she fought for that would have presumably been for a man instead. Said Hogan, Director Bob Semeckis called me for a much smaller part, and I said, listen, Bob, I rode a bus my entire life. Hogan will talk about no less than two of her current prison dramas. Shelter in Solitude, and co-starring with Anne Hathaway in Eileen, opening in December, and what she has to say about the actor's strike against Wall Street-controlled Hollywood East and West. Hello, Siobhan, and welcome to our show. Yes, thank you so much. Now, Shelter in Solitude is about incarceration in this country, and your relationship with the death row prisoner where did this subject come from out of your imagination and your observations of the real world around you? This is what happened. My father was an attorney, and he was a very funny guy, but he was a good guy, and he had some 
pretty hard criminal clients. And he also represented um, a prison guard at one point. And we were kids, you know, five of us, we'd sit around the kitchen table and he'd tell us stories. So I was a bit afraid, but a bit fascinated by the stories. And my cousins, from, from a little town, Casanova, outside of Syracuse, lived in, in Pompey, New York, and we'd pass the Jamesville Penitentiary to get to their house. And I would be, as a kid, thinking, like, what's going on in there? Like, what's the deal? Like, the prisoners, are they friends with the prison guards? Or what is the deal? And then on top of it, my dad wanted me to be a country singer. Mm. And so one night after I wrote my first film, Rushed, and it came out in 2021, I thought, okay, I need to take a big break because I'm exhausted. Out of the blue, in the middle of the night, this idea came to me. What if there's a guy on death row and his prison guard is kind of this wacky, wannabe country singer who's washed up so she has to get a job as a prison guard because, you know, she can't make it as a country singer. So anyway, the, the idea comes to me in the middle of the night. I scribble it down like you would if you had a crazy dream. The next morning I wake up, I, I read it, and I, I write it in three weeks. It was like a miracle. Mm. So that's where it came from. Now, your character Val in the film, which you wrote as well, has been described as, quote, a washed-up country singer. What led you to create this character as well as play her, and what you brought to her based on your observations and experiences in the entertainment world? That's a great question. So the deal is, I've been in this a long time. And I, you know, I was on SNL and Men in Black, Forrest Gump, but there's times when you're not working. And there's a lot of people that are rough in the business who will sort of, sort of dismiss you once that time comes around. And they will treat you terribly because you know, when you're up, you're up. When you're down, you're down. Or should I say flavor of the month? So I've always been very conscious of people that were, you know, did well and then didn't. And how that makes, how that is on your ego and how on your psyche. So this, my character, and she's kind of an egomaniac. She owns, runs a bar. And there's posters all over the bar of the one and only night she sang in Nashville. So it's pretty apparent that she flopped, right? So... And what kind of person does she turn out to be? Well, she's rough around the edges. She's a cougar wannabe. She drinks too much. But at the core of it, she's been beaten up. As a matter of fact, my son is also a music supervisor, and he got me um, two amazing country singers, Justin Bill Conan from Three Doors Down. And, he's, and there's a song in it that he wrote called A Heartache Rodeo and about how she says, I've got scars on scars that have been cut deep, and, and I'm good at making love walk right out on me. But she's been unlucky in love, and she's been unlucky in her career. But when, time, when the time comes to treat the prisoner who only has 10 days left to live, what does she act like? And I think the reason why the movie is really resonating is because the story gets down to brass tacks. You know, don't judge a book by its cover. So what if she drinks too much? She's a great person, and she helps this guy who's got it worse than her because he's facing his death. Now, about the actor's strike, what can you say about the strike and the issues involved and how they have touched you both politically and personally? And what do you see as the resolutions of the strike? Yes. So we have what they call the interim agreement, so we're allowed to promote this, because I didn't take a dime from any of the studios. This is a family affair, and we distribute ourselves. So we were given permission to promote. So next week I'll be on Seth Meyers, I'll be on Good Day New York. I'm allowed to do that, and the actors are allowed to promote with me as well. It is horrible. I was out in L.A. Um, a week ago. We did a screening out there. My good friend David Goodman, who did a genius job negotiating the writers' um, strike and getting them back, you know, now they're starting up again. Um, we marched with the actors on the strike line and with the writers, and it's terrible. I mean, it's – but, you know, I will say that and that Hollywood's gotten so far away from – what movies were originally about, which is telling stories and entertaining people, to becoming about greed and treating, you know, the workers unfairly, the writers unfairly, the actors unfairly. And I was lucky enough to do three films with Lars von Trier in Denmark over my career. And I learned the European way, which is, if you go to the lunch to get lunch, and the, the big star or the actors comes through, they don't say, oh, you know, here comes Siobhan. No, if the, if the, if the grip got ahead of me or the electrician, or the makeup girl, they go first. Because we're all, I'm from theater first, and I believe in the European way, which is that way, which is we all have the story and the project as our primary focus. Not, well, you know, this one makes more than you, and this one has a big, bigger star rating, or they have more followers. 
You know what I mean? We've gotten all screwed up on what's important. And what can you say about your upcoming film, Eileen, co-starring with Anne Hathaway, also a prison drama? I'm, I'm, I'm thinking, is, are my stars aligned? Am I going to end up in jail somehow? So <laughs> I was lucky enough to be in the film, Eileen, with Anne Hathaway, with William Olderide, who I'm such a fan, and um, Thomas and Mackenzie. So I play a Boston, really kind of mean, bitter uh, mm. prison secretary. And she's the opposite of, of Val, you know, who's my southern gal in Shelter and Solitude. But yeah, it was a big hit at Sundance, and that's coming out in December, so I'm really proud to be a part of it. And I love, you know, I love doing accents, laying accents on, and hiding behind them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it was a thrill to be in it. Okay, thank you so much, Siobhan, for joining us on the show. Yes, and I really appreciate you having me on. All right, thanks a lot. Bye. Have a good day. And Shelter in Solitude is out this week in release. And next up on Arts Express. Hi, this is the UK desk for Arts Express, and my name is Brett Gregory. What follows is my review of Norman Finkelstein's latest book, I'll Burn That Bridge When I Get to It, Heretical Thoughts on Identity Politics, Cancel Culture, and Academic Freedom, published by Sublation Press in 2023. Educated at Princeton University, his subsequent academic work, publications and political activism generated from the 1970s onwards appear to have been intensely and inevitably informed by this woe-begotten wellspring of human horror. While his mother's recollections of enduring the Holocaust burned into his psyche as a boy growing up, her post-war pacifism impressed itself upon his mindset as a man. In the 2009 documentary, American Radical, The Trials of Norman Finkelstein, available on YouTube, he even jokingly describes himself as, quote, Finkelstein's monster. Finkelstein was born in Brooklyn in 1953, and both his mother and father were survivors of the Warsaw Ghetto and the concentration camps in Majdanek and Auschwitz. The rest of his family were wiped out completely. He has written many books on the Israel-Palestine conflict, But in 2005, he wrote Beyond Hutzpah on the misuse of anti-Semitism and the abuse of history, where he disparages in detail the 2003 book A Case for Israel, written by the influential and affluent US lawyer Alan Dershowitz, primarily for containing false information and for academic plagiarism. He later repeated these attributions in person to Amy Goodman on WBAI's Democracy Now! show. Following these charges, Dershowitz accused Finkelstein of being a Jew-hater and a Holocaust denier and persistently threatened him with legal action over the next four years. He even approached the then Governor of California, Arnold Schwarzenegger, to prevent Beyond Hutzpah from being published by the University of California. When this request was rejected, he proceeded to exert his considerable power to successfully lobby professors, alumni and administrators to oppose Finkelstein's 2007 bid for tenure at DePaul University in Chicago. Ultimately, Norman Finkelstein fated alongside Edward Said and Noam Chomsky as one of the most prominent US defenders of the Palestinian people, described by South African professor of law John Duggard as, quote, probably the most serious scholar on the conflict in the Middle East, was made unemployable in both the US and Europe for the next seven years, until finally he secured a long-distance lecturing position at Sakarya University in Turkey in 2014. In today's parlance, he was cancelled. I'll burn that bridge when I get to it contends, amongst many other things, that the spontaneous, illogical, unresearched and regressive practice of wokeness, identity politics and cancel culture is being systematically exploited by the established elite and their media outlets in order to distract, divide, disenfranchise and dominate the political agency of citizens throughout the socio-cultural sphere. Finkelstein acknowledges that Western society's attitudes towards sexual, racial and ethnic minorities are, quote, a civilizational advance, a cultural tectonic shift, which we should all take pride in. This said, he also argues that at the core of identity politics, there is a battle within a group about who represents them most legitimately and effectively in wider society until one faction's version prevails. Yet there is still no single valid definition of what race is. 
what ethnicity is, what gender is, or what sexuality is. Furthermore, Finkelstein queries why somebody would want to be defined by their own birth and personhood anyway, or have it superficially valorised by wider popular culture, instead of being recognised for one's own agency, actions and achievements. Why would one not wish to transcend this imposition, this burden? For instance, why does an astronaut have to be identified and co-opted as a black astronaut, a female astronaut, or a gay astronaut? Why can't an astronaut be identified as an astronaut due to their intelligence, industriousness, and insight? Why celebrate their ethnicity, gender, or sexuality, something which they have had no choice about? To reinforce his point, Finkelstein cites Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech from 1963, wherein the late minister hopes that, quote, my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the colour of their skin, but by the content of their character. He then heatedly illustrates this point by charting the mainstream corporate media's ongoing lionisation of Barack and Michelle Obama's wokeness as the couple proceed to spend $12 million on an estate in Martha's Vineyard and $8 million on a property in Washington, D.C., as well as accrue $65 million from a joint book deal with Random House and negotiate an unspecified high amount with Netflix. Crucially, however, he also targets Jeff Bezos's recent $100 million donation to the Obama Foundation, stating, quote, It's not hard to guess which side Obama will be on if and when Amazon workers strike. Indeed, as neoliberalist tech feudalism rapidly engulfs people's everyday lives and, in reaction, class-based politics once again attempts to keep everyone's heads above water, it is no surprise that, along with the cult of mediated narcissism, quote, the ruling elites across the political spectrum have embraced identity politics to deflect from the class struggle. Finkelstein continues by reminding us that, quote, Professor Noam Chomsky popularised the phrase manufacturing consent to denote the mechanisms by which incongruous facts and opinions are filtered out in an ostensibly democratic society. And, in essence, this is what cancel culture is all about. The suppression of ideas, language and people as a method of social control as a means for a self-appointed ruling body to maintain and increase its power in a relationship, in a group, in an institution, and or across culture in general. Usefully, Finkelstein advances four key semantic areas wherein cancel culture erroneously operates. Firstly, that speech is suppressed or cancelled because it is deemed to be false. However, since human beings are fallible, how do we know who is right or wrong? For example, a 98-year-old Ukrainian war veteran was recently hailed as a hero and received two standing ovations in the Canadian Parliament. It was later discovered, however, that he had in fact been a member of the SS 14th Waffen Division under the command of the Nazis. Secondly, the person articulating this speech is evil. Be that as it may, this doesn't discount that what is being said is not true. For example, the early 20th century US serial killer, Albert Fish, is widely quoted as declaring, none of us are saints. Thirdly, what is being said is offensive. However, as individuals, aren't we always offended by something, somewhere, at any time? A stupid comment overheard at a bus stop, say? An idiotic post on social media? a mawkish line of dialogue delivered by some movie star, a poorly written review on a radio show. So what should happen? Ban all communication? All opinion? All difference? Quote, as Justice Holmes famously rejoined, every idea is an incitement. Finally, there is speech which is suppressed or cancelled because it is considered regressive, underdeveloped or backward. Times change, however. For example, Quote, in the first half of the 20th century, eugenics was all the rage in progressive circles. And notable names such as Theodore Roosevelt and H.G. Wells were in favour of improving the human race by way of scientific breeding. Fortunately, the legality of state-enforced sterilisation came before the US Supreme Court in Book v. Bell in 1927, 
wherein it was argued that feeble-minded Carrie Buck and her feeble-minded mother and daughter should be made infertile because, quote, three generations of imbeciles are enough. Justice Butler was a devout Catholic, however, and he dismissed the case on the grounds that all human life is sacred. Thus, as the Nazi concentration camps would later prove, the scientific progressives here were wrong, while the religious regressives were right. I'll burn that bridge when I get to it. It's broad in scope, brash in style, bristling with morality and bulging with uncomfortable truths. It is highly recommended. This has been the UK Desk for Arts Express and I've been Brett Gregory. Cheers. And now on Arts Express. Hi, this is Jack Shalom. I'm so happy to be speaking again with our next guest, a starburst of humor, talent, skill, and insight. She co-created and starred in the award-winning off-Broadway hit Old Hats and has written three acclaimed musical biographies. She's a recipient of PETA's Humanitarian Award. She's a superb and courageous singer-songwriter with nine albums, including her latest album, Hey Guys, Watch This!, I'm happy to have back as our guest, Nellie Mackay. Hi, Nellie. Hi, uh, hello, Jack. It's been a while since you've come out with an album of all original songs. So what prompted you doing this? Oh, <laughs> well, I mean, I guess capitalism. But uh, beyond that, you know, uh, it, I mean, it's maybe it's like giving birth. You don't, you forget uh, the, the labor process. <laughs> um, I, I thought we were going to do this in about two weeks, and it took about a year, but um, it's like a nice treat. Yeah, well, it is a treat for us, certainly. And you you say on the album that Jimmy Dore had something to do with inspiring you to, to, <laughs> to write this, because it it's been, what, 13 years, I think, since you, you had an album with original songs. Yeah, and he's been badgering me for about half of that. Well, I appreciate <laughs> that you did. You have uh, some songs on this album which are are real wake-up calls. You let us in easily, and then and then you hook us. You have a song on the album, for example, called The Party Song, which starts off fairly upbeat and then swerves into scenes of the victims of the Hiroshima bomb. And it, it's quite brilliant, in my opinion, and we'll, we'll play a bit from that. But was there an actual party that inspired that song? <laughs> yeah, and you're probably the only one who would get it. I, I think... It, it, generally, when I play it, I've actually had a little bit of trouble with that, but people just assume it's the Republican Party, which is too easy. It's too yeah. easy to, you know, uh, to say that if only there weren't Republicans, everything would be la-di-da. And in fact, the two parties work uh, together. And sometimes I've commented on that song, uh, that there's the two-headed uniparty that runs this country. Um, and uh, even that, I think, is... It's a little bit of a dodge because it's more about the Democrats than the Republicans because there's a, a greater false front with the Democrats. The Republicans are mm -hmm. more honest about what they do. And in my own life, um, the, the Democrats have been more the betrayer. Mm. I, I know you were a supporter of Bernie, and uh, he certainly uh, let a lot of people down also. Yes. I'm so glad you understand. You're going to be the only person I talk to <laughs> about this album who does. May the fire burn brighter than the blade Luminate through spires and the shroud As the silence settles on the big ears and chins the world was relieved and still agrees it was worth it in the end it meant the fight was over the explicit one at least as the streamers fell we bid farewell to war and welcomed peace and I know Yeah, I like that you use those words of false front because I'm thinking about another song on your album called Initiation. The persona there is of a woman who's been sexually abused, and it talks about the false front that she has to put up in front of everybody, sort of the, the neutral uh, 
unengaged person. Well, right, but I but I, I also think that that song it doesn't just apply to women, but um, you know it can apply to so many people who are beat down. Um, mm. And it reminds me, you know, of the line in Working Class Hero that as soon as you're born, they make you feel small. So many people that from an early age, or at least eventually, they just start to acquiesce. They they just have to pretend that everything's okay, but. Um, whether it's personally or it's the system, they live in terror and, and they feel, you know, you lose more and more freedom. You bear the brunt of that responsibility. I mean, if you have to just pay your bills, I mean, all of a sudden you got to put a, up a false front to the boss. And It's not just about an individual. It's about a whole system. Yes. Yeah. You just have, I mean, well, look at the self-checkout. You know, and 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 look at the look at the way we're doing more for less, and we're living in this um, uh, surveillance state, and and we've got cameras in our faces, and they're firing people who they didn't give health care to anyway at these stores. The government is supposed to only take our money and put it towards war and corporate welfare, and not towards people's basic needs. And we're just supposed to just accept that. You've seen a face that can remain unfazed while being put in her place. She must be custom made for you. What can she do? From a young age was made to feel ashamed of many dreams she dreamed and so she gave away the view I made for you. Every time you yell when you point and shout Every time you tell me what it's all about I get deja vu to a youth lived through the eyes of another When you live in fear long enough you hear Subtle warning signs coming through loud and clear So you disappear in the well-worn gears of a life undercover I've been abused So I'm used to it Used to just taking it Instead of breaking down I just get nondescript And to avoid conflict I don't react, I don't talk back No matter what the cue Avert my eyes and muffle sighs Just visualize you through I was made I just don't see how everyone isn't completely insane. How well, we retain any shred of humanity. Yes, and speaking of completely insane, or maybe not, the last song on your album, well, I guess I could call it a punk tour de force called Make a Wish of about a woman who aspires to be the first female Jeffrey Dahmer, drilling holes in people's heads, and also wishes to be the first U.S. woman president figuring out what could be better credentials than being the first female Jeffrey Dahmer. It's a, it's a wild satire. I thought I was beyond being shocked, but it was pretty shocking. It's kind of a Lenny Bruce move. What was the origin of that song? Oh, well, thank you. Well, actually, you know, uh, Jimmy had covered, it might have been the first place I heard about uh, the weapons manufacturing companies that they were all being headed by women now and how that uh -huh. was being seen as a victory for feminism um mm. but it's it's in so many other ways too it seems like the goal of people who have been shut out and that's so many that's most people is to be assimilated into the machine and uh, is that progress is that really something to uh wish for you just feel like all those movements, they've been co-opted and, and turned on their heads. I mean, feminism used to be anti-war. That was the origin of Mother's Day. And when you look at those posters from the time, like the one of the little girl on fire in Vietnam, and the famous artwork said, and babies, question mark, and then at the bottom it said, and babies. Right. I know people who had that poster up in their apartment in the 70s, yep. And now they're supporting the war in Ukraine. I mean, if it comes from a Democrat, it's okay. Sweet little innocent sad girl, drilling them holes in the m***ing heads. Mean little fine boy, drilling more holes in more heads. Who are you going to vote for? Can't vote for the hombre, doesn't make sense. Female Jeffrey Dahmer, going to be first woman president. Well, I said this song was shocking to me. What's it like? 
uh, to sing that song before an audience. And uh, of course, you always set it up with a nice, you know, Doris Day tune first, and then you go into this. Yes. <laughs> what's yeah. What's it like? Well, I mean, knock wood, but I mean, so far, people like it. They have more of a problem with the party song as soon as they know what it's about. Oh, really? Yes, because I guess it's more serious. Um, but um, I don't know. I also think that there's a part of people that does know. They do know. They do know what our government does. They do. They they know mm -hmm. that, that the system is rotten. They know that the talking heads on TV are lying to them. Yeah. So we're just really kind of getting out of COVID. What was it like as an artist who's on the road a lot? How did you deal with the COVID lockdown? Oh, it's awful. We're still dealing with it. Venues have permanently closed or venues oh. are basically struggling to come back. There's so much despair. Addiction spiraled upwards. Um, there are less and less spots for people. I mean, if you look at the the, the actors and the writers, say, for instance, in theater, um, you had smaller casts and smaller crews, and you had more and more people who were desperate from all that time um, being completely shut down. So many small businesses, uh, say in New York, closed where you really feel it because you pass them every day. And that has a real effect on a neighborhood. It's like gentrification. Um, or it's like when the two big universities kick people out of their homes wantonly. Oh, don't. Columbia and NYU, if they could just, the, the harm they do, I mean, especially uh -huh. with their animal experiments, but to the community, just wanton. It, but it, it's like that. When you gentrify a place, when you displace businesses, when you displace your neighbors and friends, even if you still remain there, you've lost the neighborhood. It's as yeah. though you don't live in the same place anymore. Forever home, never more forever. I've got nothing left to give Lost the only life I'll live Truck stop treats and midnight blues Sloughing off the muse Cabin fever which way out Drugstore season mixed with doubt Lost the inky recipe Can this be a dream? We're going to have to wrap up a little bit, but is there anything else you wanted to talk about before we end? Ah, oh, gee, Jack, this has just been so lovely. I guess it would just be that I spend time with animal rights activists who I wish they listened more to, to you and to uh, WBAI um, because uh, they don't seem to see the corruption of the system, even though they have so much empathy and, and love in them. And then I know anti-war activists who don't connect what we do to people to what we do to animals. There's such a powerful connection that if we accept one form of violence, that the chickens will come home to roost, whether it's literally chickens or it's, um, it's what we do to people in other countries, what happens here, or how we treat people who are different from us, that, that if we accept it, that it's going to come back and you're not going to stop war if we don't stop the exploitation of animals and then i i guess i'll just i'll mention that you know the other thing is the the anti-censorship because it's destroying the arts the 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 art scene in new york is perhaps the most censorious place maybe mm. in the world i mean but it's happening worldwide it's be, it, it's taking that basic human empathy and focusing on what you say or ideas you have as opposed to what people do. The same people in the arts who seem to have no problem with bombings or, um, or all, the, all the systemic cruelty, but they will not accept you saying something, regardless of context. I mean, this is, it's death to friendship and sincerity. It's death to solidarity that we need to have on the picket line, that we need to have at protests and, and, and to, to come together, to not be pitted against each other. And it's death to the art. Well, great to have you on the show again. Thank you, Nellie. 
My name is Nelly McKay, N-E-L-L-I-E-M-C-K-A-Y. <laughs> Thanks. I've been speaking with the great Nellie McKay, talking about her new album of original songs and talking about a lot more. Her album is Hey Guys, Watch This. I recommend it highly. This is Jack Shalom for Arts Express with host Prairie Miller. Sweet little innocent sad girl, drilling them holes in the m***ing heads. Mean little fine boy, drilling more holes and more heads. Who are you going to vote for? Can't vote for the hombre, doesn't make sense. Female Jeffrey Dahmer, going to be first woman president. And we'll go out now on Ars Express with a new series of metaphysical explorations, the nine-minute Nietzsche episodes. Peter Wise and guest commentator and musician Keegan Jelson explore the intricate thoughts of the German philosopher. I am a wanderer and a mountain climber, Zarathustra said to his heart. What returns? What finally comes home to me is my own self. Alas, I have begun my loneliest walk. But whoever is of my kind cannot escape such an hour. The hour which says to him, only now are you going your way to greatness. Peak and abyss, they are now joined together for all things are baptized in a well of eternity and lie beyond good and evil. Hello, this is Peter Wise from Burlington, Iowa and Red Star Cafe. I am totally pleased to introduce a guest who will be considering Friedrich Nietzsche, the famous philosopher's thought experiment about eternal return. This is a fascinating subject and has been dealt with by philosophers from the Greeks onward. Keegan is a member of several bands, or has been. Currently, he's with Slumbering Sun and describes his music as doom metal, which if you go online, you'll see that everybody else does as well, so that's good. He's out of Austin, Texas, and he's also the voice behind Essential Salts, uh, on YouTube and uh, the podcast of his, which deals with everything to do with Nietzsche. He's an amazing, expan- he has an amazing and expansive knowledge of Friedrich Nietzsche. So on to the show. Thank you, Keegan. Nietzsche, the thought really was the a solution for man's constant depression and all his problems was art was the, the thing that could rescue him from a continual doomed life, knowing his life's going to end and all that kind of stuff, which sounds Apollonistic to me, but to you it's Dionysius, right? Dionistic, uh, to think that art can save humanity in, in his Nietzschean sort of way. Well, that sort of birth of tragedy, Aaron Nietzsche, where he says it's only as an aesthetic phenomenon that life can be eternally justified. Mm-hmm. And there's this sort of project throughout Nietzsche of like, how can mankind be redeemed, justified, or elevated? He uses all sorts of different language mm-hmm. um, that doesn't all necessarily mean the same thing but sort of the, the German word Aufheben right uh, it, it's very funny because it has three different meanings that don't correspond there's no correspondent English word that carries the same meaning so it means to cancel to preserve and to lift mm-hmm. and so you could say the word lift has uh, two meanings in English that are, do carry this like you could to lift could be to cancel something Mm-hmm. like lift the sanctions. It could also mean to lift up, right? But it also has this element of preserving in the way that, you know, a tr- the transformation of a shoot into a flower is its way of elevating what it is into its full flowering of the form of what this organism is supposed to be. But that's also its way of preserving what it is. It's sort of re- retaining its identity through transformation, but also moving on to something higher. This is the idea, a lot of people translate this as sublation in English, mm-hmm. sort of the idea of tectonic plates underneath one another, mm-hmm. pushing underneath to, to lift up. So this is the description of kind of what Nietzsche is trying to do for mankind. Another term he uses is self-overcoming, right? And right. so art is his initial 
supposition that we could use art to do this in some way. Because in his example is the ancient Greeks. He believes that through art, um, in specifically in the form of these dramatic tragedies, they confront the harsh reality of existence uh, within the sort of magic circle of the Greek chorus. Mm-hmm. Uh, the hero is eternally rent asunder, right? He's a tragic ending for the hero. But the hero, the secret, of course, is that he's always Dionysus, mm-hmm. he's reborn. And so it's sort of like the eternal spirit of man is constantly ever reborn in this ever recurring cycle. We can see how that influences Nietzsche's ideas later in his life, but he, he's initially looking at art as the solution to this. Later, it's not entirely clear um, what exactly, whether he holds on to that, that art could be the, the way forward necessarily for everyone. I think he has doubts about that later in his career. Uh, but in but Birth of Tragedy, certainly it is. Uh, art is the redeeming force. So he didn't really come up with a, a solid difference later in his life. He left it hanging for us to discover ourselves, correct? I guess you could say it would be... He, he did. Well, he's very... Nietzsche is a perspectivist, so... Mm-hmm. There's an element of Nietzsche that is very important that he doesn't believe there is such a thing as what we might call immaculate perception. Uh, the, percep- the perception of a god, right? An mm. ultimate perspective. Um, such that, and perspective isn't just like subjectivity in the vulgar sense mm-hmm. or like whim. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, your sense that there's an up or down, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a aphorism in Beyond Good and Evil that says if you still perceive the stars as something above you, you lack the eye of knowledge. Because the reality is the stars aren't above you, right? right. What is above or below, because we're on a, a, a globe floating in space, right? Or an oblate spheroid, whatever. Um, and so, but your perception that there is an up and down in your life, in your immediate perception, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, that's not like something you decided or it's not your like opinion. You, that is re- literally what we experience due to gravity and, you know, our vantage point is these terrestrial beings walking around on the surface. It's not false. To say that's an absolute perspective either. Right. It reminds me of the um, art theory where you're uh, the distance between the viewer and the artwork and it's somewhere in between and it's always shifting so it's always dynamic, and it's always uh, transforming into something new, I, I would suppose. Perception in art and visual arts, anyway, it seems like that. But you're getting on to what we wanted to talk about, is eternal recurrence, correct? And I, I'm staying away from the um, Ubermensch kind of stuff, because uh, it really has a lot of it's baggage. It's complicated. <laughs> and, it's and complicated. It's a can of worms, it, right? It is, and... Uh, <laughs> Uh, so let's limit ourselves just to, um, to the theory of eternal... Could you just briefly describe his theory um, of eternal recurrence? Sure. And I, I would say, first of all, it, it might even be controversial to call it a theory. Uh, um, because it's not exactly clear or agreed upon what eternal return is. I do have my ideas on it. Mm-hmm. But um, that should be the first thing. That The way Nietzsche first presents this in his work is as a parable. That it's very famous. It's called uh, the greatest weight. Is how it's often translated. Mm-hmm. You could also look at that sort of paraphrastically as like the toughest challenge that we could face, mm-hmm. and something to that effect. Uh, because the word weight he uses could also refer to a heavyweight boxer, right? The Certainly. toughest opponent. And it's that you know, what if in someday or night a demon came to you in your loneliest loneliness and told you the secret that every single detail of your life, exactly as it has been lived. And exactly as you will live it to the rest of your days, you will repeat eternally. What if... So Nietzsche poses it as a thought experiment. I see. He's not suggesting he's correct. He never does, actually. He always says that you have to find your own correct way, right? So he's he's very uh, open-minded, I think, about that. Well, but there's a couple th- things about that, though. Because, for one, in his unpublished notes... Mm-hmm. And in terms of a lot of the work he did that he he never ultimately put forward in any kind of formal argument, Nietzsche was trying to, not if not prove, see if it was possible for eternal return to be an actual theory in physics. This did actually concern him. Because he wanted to find opposition to the transformative, uh, transcendent religion, especially Christian, although I, I think he probably had the same low opinion of Judaism and Islam, correct, uh, would you say? Well, it's interesting because in a way, eternal return is a way of offering us some sort of 
spiritual meaning to the world or a spiritual task that can be a substitution for right. what religion gave to me. Yes, yes, yes. And so the, when you bring up the difference between this and Christianity, the main thing to understand about eternal return as to why Nietzsche would put this forward is that he wanted this life that we all live and as we live it and the world of our immediate experience the actual, what we might call the physical world, the material world, mm -hmm. or, you know, to speak colloquially, as the, of the highest supreme value and importance. He thought that Christianity, the main problem with it is that it, it all the value in life flows off into this other world. Right. Everything we do right. is for our souls after death. But he can't be satisfied with simple atheism of, you know, you're here and then you're gone, mm -hmm. right? Because he wanted the value to... He didn't want, not only does he think that this could be a, lead to nihilism, mm -hmm. so, to, so to speak, but he wanted a thought experiment for the value always flowing back into this life, that there's no, nothing outside of it, even nothingness is not outside of it, right? There's no hmm. uh, end and no beginning, just an endless cycle in eternality of the life that we have now. Could you affirm that? And that's the nature of the thought experiment, the initial question. Would you throw down your, yourself and gnash your teeth and uh, lament and say, this is a demon who told this to me, or would you say, you're a god and I've never heard anything as divine? And Nietzsche's challenge to us is, if you truly are living your life to the fullest, you will be able to say, you would be able to say in that thought experiment, I would live my life an eternity of time. So, yes. And it would have supreme value. Everything that I do in this life would be of the utmost importance because of that, because it's my only eternal reality. Right. Um, and uh, that is in opposition to those other religions. And that's all we have time for today on Arts Express, Expression in the Arts. And if you'd like to express yourself too, you can write to us at theradiogoddess at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Prairie Miller leaving the station.